everyone. Welcome to our Borderlands session number two, Conversations Between the Church and the City. This is an open space um, called by Aberdeen Methodist at Crown Terrace in the city of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, be all of you welcome and let us welcome and listen Marty Phillips, PhD candidate at the University of Aberdeen in Systematic Theology. He'll be speaking today about what we have to do with providence and how can we explore relevant questions and reflections of our daily life in the public in relation with faith and the experience of community. Let us, well, listen, welcome Marty, and we can engage on these sessions every two months. You are free and welcome to register, follow us on social media or register to our following session at the end of January through Eventbrite. Be all of you welcome. As a conversation starter, what I hope to offer is a brief reflection on the nature of providential governance a notion addressing how God's ways correlate to the moral activities of human beings in conversation with John Wesley. Providential governance asks simply, how is one to ascribe God's activity to that which humans do, good or ill, in everyday life and in history? The matter at hand is what human beings as free, intelligent persons made in the image of God do and how that falls within God's providence. To this end, Wesley offers an illuminative idea that one cannot speak of providential governance without speaking of human involvement in what God governs. Wesley, whose theological vision revolves around God's justification of humanity and humanity's restoration to responsibility, allows for an opportunity to reflect on the ways in which God and the wonders of God's wisdom chooses to involve what one does in God's history of salvation. This idea, however valuable, finds its merit precisely in its historical precedent. Wesley fears doctrinal in, in, Wesley fears doctrinal innovation. He writes in On Sin and Believers, in protest against the novelty of the Moravian doctrines of sanctification, that quote, whatever doctrine is new must be wrong, for the old religion is the only true one. End quote. So, to understand Wesley's position on God's providential governance, one should bear in mind a set of traditional presumptions on which Wesley builds. He presumes that God's providence is an ongoing act of the external life of the triune God, which one can differentiate according to various intensities. God conserves, sustains, and most eminently governs that which God created very good. He presumes that the end of God's governance is the same as that of the whole doctrine of providence, to give account of God's sovereignty and wisdom unfolding within history, even as the tumult of creaturely history remains accomplished in the eternal inner life of God. He presumes that the God who acts in providence is living, active, and distinct from God's creatures. God wills all that goes on in the world even as God's creatures likewise enjoy the use of their wills. To this end, neither deism nor pantheism will suffice in speech about God's providential grace. Finally, 
within the particular intensity of providential governance. He presumes both immediate, that God works directly and discreetly, and mediate, that God works indirectly, distinctions within, within divine providential activity. As much as Wesley stands within this strain, his articulation reflects his confrontation with the deism of his contemporary David Hume, against whom Wesley emphasizes God's exhaustive involvement in human affairs. But averse to any hint of determinism, he does so in a way that yields an intriguing, cooperative notion of providential governance. To grasp the merits of Wesley's account, one must resist making a straw man out of Hume's deism. To Hume's credit, refusing to concede that God works actively in the world, even in a mediated sense, seems a responsible correction to the indulgent speculation of the preceding centuries. In pursuit of God's will, or a rendition of it, religious wars tore apart Europe. Natural disasters such as the Lisbon earthquake became evidences of God's judgment against one's preferred enemy. It should not surprise anyone that deism of any form becomes attractive for an 18th century mind. Today, in the midst of a global pandemic, the impending climate disaster, and at least in my own context as a U.S. citizen, the indulgently close approximation of Republican Party values with evangelical Protestant Christianity, deism seems a plausible and at times when I cannot bear to look on another headline, a preferred option. There is a pressure, both now and then, however disingenuously to the life of faith, to admit that God is inactive in and among the chaos of the nations. Wesley, like Hume, is not naive to the abuses of providence. Yet rather than capitulate to the rampant abuses of speech about God's providential governance and fall silent, he doubles down on its import, emphasizing the ways in which God's governance is mediated through what human beings do. This mediation is what I hope to focus on in what remains. God's providential governance, which is active, discreet, and exhaustive involvement in the moral conduct of human life is a reality that all Christians confess both passively and actively, demonstrating the import of the doctrine of providence. For Wesley, a Christian cannot opt out of this doctrine. That quote, God is concerned every moment for what befalls every creature upon earth, and more especially for everything that befalls human beings. It is hard indeed to comprehend this, Nay, it is harder still to believe it, considering the complicated wickedness and the complicated misery which we see on every side. But believe it we must, unless we will make God a liar, although it is sure no man can comprehend it. End quote. While an intractable dynamic of the Christian life and thus an object of Christian theology, Wesley is obviously aware of the pitfalls. He navigates the gin craze, the Lisbon earthquake, the Jacobite rebellions, the American war for independence, outbreaks of pestilence, the ecclesial squabbles of the maturing Methodists, all events which garner all of providential speech's viciousness, if one were so inclined. The 18th century world is no less a mess than our own. Nevertheless, belief in God's providence we must, unless we will make God a liar. Wesley's way out towards a viable notion of providential governance emerges in conjunction with his cooperative vision of humanity's relation to grace. 
no one can comprehend God's providence, thus holding the doctrine at arm's length from its abusers. But in the sense that God's govern but in the sense that God's governance is exhaustive, all human action involves itself of necessity in the unfolding of God's providence. I suggest that one of the most robust encapsulations of what Wesley means when he speaks of providence with this care comes to us from the work of one of his best interpreters, 19th century theologian William Byrd Pope, who writes in his Compendium of Christian Theology, Providential government is limited to intelligent or probationary creatures. However vague, there is no rule worthy of being connected with the name of the Supreme, save over free beings conscious of their freedom and of their responsibility. Similarly, the word strictly belongs to the control of God over probationary creatures, that is, over beings undergoing a temporary trial with reference to an eternal issue. End quote. Part of the idea shared between Wesley and Pope is this, that the sovereignty and wisdom of the divine will is not simply an overruling of human life, a consoling embrace or justifying explanation that in faith the Christian overlays atop that which goes on in the world, what they enact and what they suffer. One might think of this as providence considered in light of one's passivity, anticipating, waiting, and watching for what God has done and will do, with less regard to what one does in the meantime. For example, when a family rejoices following a loved one's bout with a menacing virus and describes this healing to God in gratitude, thy will be done, they say. Or when a friend laments after losing their employment, funds running dry as global pandemics lead to global recessions, and seeking solace, calls upon God's will, thy will be done, they say. When one considers these examples, experiences which I fear many have come to know intimately in the preceding months, the way they are oriented to God and the world, their disposition is passive. They watch, wait, and anticipate that they will undergo God's providential care. This is, in Wesley's vision, the place to begin but not the place to end when thinking of God's providential governance. Wesley thickens this account, shifting how one thinks about God's providential governance from a passive disposition to an active one, as a confession that sets one in motion towards where God is already moving. He writes, Whereas all the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in governing human beings as human beings, not as a stock or a stone, but as an intelligent and free spirit, capable of choosing either good or evil. End quote. For Wesley, the sovereignty and wisdom of God's providential governance invites the congruence of one's own will, conferring on us the obligations and rewards that coincide with this gracious divine human interplay and what happens in everyday life. This is, quite simply, what it means to say that human lives are probationary. There are eternal stakes in what we do, of which at times Wesley is, as we know, hyper aware. Here the confession, thy will be done, takes on a different tone, shifting from a patient, earnest hope to a faithful resolve. For example, 
To confess, thy will be done, is to take in a friend estranged from their partner and worried in the face of lockdown restrictions and give them a home as long as is needed. To confess, thy will be done, is to give an abundance to those stricken by hunger. To confess, thy will be done, is to protect, is to confess thy will be done is to protest unjust legislation and wicked governance that privileges economic well-being over human lives. God's governance here is something one does. In God's sovereign wisdom, God freely chooses to mediate God's administration of redemption through God's people so that one becomes a means of grace. Insofar as God's providence exemplifies who God is, and that which happens in everyday life, human beings, as God's creatures, are called to share in this providence, so Wesley shows. In a word, each individual has a stake in the actualization of God's will. The fact that this is the case, if one follows Wesley, gives way to a matchless display of divine sovereignty and wisdom. One may wonder whether such a view of one's involvement in God's ways in the world gives way to a naive optimism which, for all its initial promise, falls back into the same self-congratulatory viciousness by those who claimed the earthquake at Lisbon was God's righteous judgment against Catholicism. To be fair to this criticism, Wesley does have a bit of a habit of affirming the Methodist revival as nothing less than the outworking of God's providence, and viewed his own life as providentially ordered to an, at times, self-aggrandizing level, not to mention the hero worship of the evangelical revival, but that is not, I contend, the majority report when reflecting on how this account of providential governance works in Wesley's theological vision. The affirmation of God's sovereignty in this cooperative governance is paradoxically actualized in history. If Wesley is right, then one must remain ever vigilant that what we perceive to be good and the progresses we claim to accomplish not calcify into idols. The wonder of God's providence remains gratuitous, belonging properly to God, not to ourselves. For example, rather than look to the good of the revival or the virtue of the church, which at times Wesley will do, Wesley has a sober, nearly melancholic view of human history. His longest work, The Doctrine of Original Sin, begins with a rolling account of human sinfulness demonstrated in history unto the present day. He does something similar repeatedly throughout his writings. Time and time again, human beings fail to abide the will of God, and in a sense, fail God's providence. But this aptitude for failure, something we are profoundly excellent at, is precisely where Wesley finds reason to glory in God's sovereignty and wisdom. Wesley explains, quote, Equally conspicuous is the wisdom of God in the government of nations, of states and kingdoms, yea, rather more conspicuous. Here, evil people and evil spirits continually oppose the divine will and create numberless irregularities. Here, therefore, is full scope for the exercise of all the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, in counteracting all the wickedness and folly of humanity, and all the subtlety of Satan, to carry on God's glorious design, the salvation of lost humanity. God's wisdom is shown by saving human beings in such a manner as not to destroy their nature, not to take away their liberty which God has given them. 
which God has given them. O happy fall, it is God's accommodation of creaturely resistance to the history of salvation that perhaps counterintuitively to all practical appearances leads to the confession of God's sovereignty. Here, finally, the gap between passively waiting for God's providence and actively resolving oneself to do that which they feel called are again intertwined. The wisdom of God's sovereignty unveils itself despite us. Even while in grace, one always has the opportunity to, in doing what is holy, ascribe God's providential governance to that which one does in everyday life. As with any short presentation, the purpose aims to begin conversations and not to end them. Perhaps in this case, Wesley's account of providential governance opens too many conversations. For example, how do divine and human willing relate? What does Wesley mean by divine sovereignty? How does one perceive the opportunities to involve ourselves in God's providence and so on? The courage of Wesley's account, however, to confess God's providential governance despite the doctrine's abuses, sets a theological vision worth contemplating and, perhaps, emulating. Thank you.